Hey, good morning, guys. Uh, so good to be together this morning. So wonderful to worship with one another and uh, sharing just the life of a family. Again, I know we say this every week, but again, in such strange times, in times where it'd be so easily to disconnect and to feel isolation, which I know has been a part of the experience. Uh, but this gathering on a Sunday, for me, just reveals the power of the church, the power of coming together, the power of linking arms and staying strong in times that are so turbulent. And uh, it's so important that we, as the church, uh, the big C, the church, the global church, the global representation of God's kingdom on earth, that we stay together. And uh, I mean, that's something that Dan was really communicating last week around this idea of it's not right that we as a body are divided and we are turbulent in a time when the world and everything around us, society at large, is divided and turbulent. And we, we received a couple um, messages throughout the week, just in terms of the leadership team, from people just asking the question, was Dan referring to something specifically being wrong in the church? And, you know, has something, something happened? And the answer is no. No, he wasn't. There's, there's no specific concern. It was more just a word to the church in general um, that, hey, this isn't a time to find where we disagree. This is a time to celebrate where we're unified. And we are unified around Lord Jesus, the King. We're unified around his life, his teaching, his kingdom, his death, his resurrection. So may we celebrate that and may we find unity like never before around the things in which we can celebrate. Um, and it just reaffirms why this series we're exploring about joy is so important. I talked about this a couple weeks ago, but you know, joy isn't circumstantial. Joy isn't happiness. It's not fleeting. Happiness is based upon what has happened, what is happening around us. Joy is a deep set, set conviction that is beyond the circumstance in front of us. And to be a people of joy in this time is such a testament to who God is. It really, truly is. And so I'm going to continue uh, the series this morning, but I want to just be really honest at the beginning of this sermon that I'm not preaching the sermon that I intended to preach this week. Um, and it might feel a little different. And the reason that's the case is we're not in the week uh, that I expected we'd be in. We'd never know what's coming up, what's going to be happening in the world around us, in the culture, in the society around us. But we have a mission statement as a church, and that is to be real, to be relevant, to be radical. And I just felt like it wasn't right to not really bring in the context of what's happening right now to this sermon and testify that we're real radical, ra radical and relevant. If we are those things, then we have to speak into the moment of culture that, in which we find ourselves. And I don't know about you, uh, but this has been a very sad week. I mean, it's been tragic in a number of different ways. We are living in, I think, very interesting and important times. I, I want to reflect upon um, what has been happening uh, since the televised murder of George Floyd, um, a black man in America who was tragically murdered by a white police officer. And the response to his death has been global and has been deeply emotional and deeply sorrowful. And I believe it's right for us to take a moment this morning to reflect upon how we, as followers of Jesus, can best respond, how we as followers of Jesus can represent Christ in the midst of all that is happening. And um, I think the scriptures show us, I think the scriptures reveal to us 
how to do such a thing. Jesus didn't just reveal what God is like. You know, it says throughout the, throughout the, the, the scriptures, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus said in John 8, before Abraham was, I am. And the second verse goes to say, they picked up stones to kill him. It was, he, he was testifying, I am God. And Paul reaffirms it throughout um, his letters. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. But not only that, Jesus in his incarnation, Jesus taking on flesh also reveals what humanity is truly like. He reveals what it looks like for us to live in a redeemed and kingdom-centric attitude and approach to everything that's happening. So we only need to open up the Gospels and study the life of Jesus to know what it really is we should be doing in times such as this. And in the wake of such a sorrowful event that has put a magnifying glass to so much other attributes of our culture that need a change, we have to dive into the scriptures and look at the stories of Jesus. So. I want to read to you from John chapter 3. I'm reading from the ESV, and you can join uh, me in reading this morning. I'm going to read from chapter 3, verse 13. This is what it says. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went to Jerusalem. So just a bit of context. Jerusalem is now filled with people, thousands and thousands of people, pilgrims that have come from all around to celebrate the Passover feast. And uh, so Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and in the temple... In the temple in Jerusalem, uh, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And then making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and he overturned their tables and he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show for these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy the temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that had spoken. This is such a powerful scripture. In, in John 15, just a few chapters later, Jesus says, all that I have said to you, all that I've said to you is so that my joy may be made complete within you. And I read that scripture this week, honestly, and in just praying about this morning and praying about how to respond. And I realized everything that is recorded in these stories in the book of John, it, the book of John moves quickly from one event to another. Everything that Jesus is doing is communicating something to us about what it means to live in his likeness. Everything that he said, Jesus said, all that I've said to you is that my joy may be made complete within you. So when we look at Jesus, even in moments like this, where it feels so just expressive and almost theatrical and, and it's protest and it's, it's things that we wouldn't often attribute to Jesus commonly, right? It's so sort of disruptive. It's because he's showing us what it means to live in his kingdom. And it's so that his joy may be made complete within us. Joy looks like protest and joy looks like revolution. Having joy in you looks like being someone who is uncomfortable with allowing what is normal and what is accepted, 
when still unjust to go on as business as normal. Joy isn't rooted in what's happening around us. Joy is rooted in a much deeper conviction. And so it empowers you to bring change. And that's what's happening here. Jesus walks into the temple and he starts overthrowing the tables and pouring out the money and, and, and creating this whip. Not, not because he's going to go in and hurt people. Jesus wasn't violent. Jesus preached, turn the other cheek. When Jesus responded to Peter's cutting off the ear of a Roman with healing it, he was disarming the church. He was saying violence is never the response, never the response. But in turning over the tables, in creating this whip, he was ending a system. The whip, why did he have a whip? So that he could drive out the oxen. He was whipping out animals. Why? That's what happened, right? That's the story of the Old Testament. That man sacrifices animals to receive God's forgiveness. What was Jesus doing? Well, he says, he says later on, just a few verses. He says, I'm talking about my temple. I am the temple. A day is coming where all of this will be nullified. This temple, brick and mortar, This doesn't mean anything. I am the temple, says Jesus, and you will tear me down. But in three days, I'll be raised again. And in my resurrection, I will bring an end to the system that has conditioned you to believe that killing an animal will give you God's forgiveness. It is only, says Jesus, through my sacrifice. It is only through my blood that the true cleansing that you seek can actually happen. I'm changing everything. And not only that, but there's this economical system in place where people are buying oxen. The poor are buying pigeons, right? They can't afford an animal as big as the oxen, so they're buying pigeons to, to, to do whatever they can to have a blood sacrifice at Passover. And Jesus is saying, it was never meant to be like this. He quotes from Isaiah 56. There's two accounts of this. It's amazing. John 3, uh, sorry, John 2, and uh, in Matthew 21, I believe. I'm going to put the correct scripture down here if I've got that wrong. Matthew 21, I believe it is, where, where Jesus reveals his heart for the temple, that the temple would be a house of prayer, my father's house, house of prayer. He's evoking this vision that Isaiah had in Isaiah 56 about what Israel as a church, as an example of godly priesthood would look like. And selling animals to people who couldn't afford it went totally against everything that God had dreamt of, that Isaiah had a vision of. It was the prostitution of forgiveness and mercy that Jesus was responding to. He was saying, in effect, the system is corrupt and the system has to change. And so he protested. He revolted. There was a joyful revolution at place. The cross, the crucifixion is the greatest revolution that has ever happened. It's the overturning of death. It's the overturning of sin. It's where everything at this moment in human history, it's where absolutely everything 
change. I want to just evoke some of the, the, the scriptures from Isaiah 56 that Jesus was, was incorporating into the moment that we were bearing witness to. Isaiah 56 is a stunning, just please go and read it. It's a stunning vision of the church. It's a stunning vision for Israel where God calls Israel to be a place, uh, a church where the foreigners, Isaiah 56, 6, where the foreigners would be able to join themselves to this established house of God, where the outcasts would be gathered in, a place where there would be no obstruction for anyone to receive the mercy of God. And this is the truth of the gospel. The gospel, my friends, please take, if nothing, take away this line. The gospel is not that Jesus came to forgive us of our sins. The gospel, the good news, is that Jesus has come to bring us into his kingdom. The forgiveness of sins is a critical part in that process. But Jesus didn't stop at the forgiveness of sins. His resurrection was the inauguration of a new kingdom, a new system, a heavenly system upon our earth. It begins now and it lasts forever. And all you need to read is the gospels over and over and over again to see this isn't just about a transaction. It isn't just about forgiveness. It's about a whole new way of living. It's about a whole new idea of what it means to be human, what it means to live on planet earth, about how to treat one another. And in the wake of George Floyd's murder, I believe as a church, we're having to ask ourselves the question of how are we fulfilling that scripture of Isaiah 56, that when Jesus saw in a church, in the temple system, it wasn't being fulfilled. In fact, the opposite was happening. His heart was grieved to the point he fashioned a whip and overturned the tables. That was his response. So our question today in 2020 is how could we be not fulfilling God's heart for what the church is meant to be and look like? And are there tables that we are meant to overturn? Paul says this in Corinthians 6.19, he says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. You are not your own. I love how he phrases it. Did you not know that? Did you forget? Let me remind you, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Jesus might not be walking amongst us in flesh, but Paul said, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. Jesus, 2,000 years later, is still in the temple. And that temple is you. And that temple is me. And Jesus hasn't simmered down. And Jesus hasn't become more polite. And Jesus hasn't let go of his audacious and uncorrupted, undistracted, undivided pursuit of bringing his kingdom wherever he is. And so the question for us now is how? 
how are we representing the temple of God? I want to get really specific because the word has to be made flesh. The word looks like something. In Isaiah 56, 1, the vision of Isaiah that Jesus responds to in his overthrowing of the, te the temple system. It says, keep justice and do righteousness for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness will be revealed. So this scripture, this, this vision of that Isaiah wrote was a description of what it looked like to be one who kept justice and did righteous works, right? And he clearly says it is the acceptance of the foreigner. Who is the foreigner to Israel? Let's, let's make it about the, the scripture and the, 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 the application. The foreigner was someone who didn't look like Israel, who came from another place, another land, who was of a different culture, a different skin color, who looked different, acted different, and wasn't the same. So God's heart for us in the way in which we do the works of justice and righteousness is to be a church which is utterly inclusive. We have to ask ourselves this question. Do we have within us racism? Racism is a prejudice towards people of a different race. This is a difficult question. Not because it shouldn't be asked. It's a difficult question because the answer in so many respects is feels so easy. No, no, of course I'm not racist. Of course I'm not racist. And that's why this morning I felt it's so important to tackle the question, to ask the question. We have racism within our society, within our homes, within our churches, and within ourselves in ways that we can't even see. I'm preaching this morning, not, not to a white church. There are many people in our congregation who aren't white, but I am preaching to a church which is predominantly white, in a city, Bath, which is predominantly white, in a country that has, has, is historically white. And so as a white person, as a white man, I've had to go on a journey, and I've been on this journey for a long time, in which I've asked myself, what does racism mean? And could it be that as a white man, inherently, I do have expressions of racism in my life? Not because I'm a bad person, not because I do anything which is overtly racist, but because systemically, I've grown up in a society and I've grown up in a culture which has been built upon foundations which are racist. Let me give you a very quick history lesson. The anti-slavery bill happened in 1833. In the 1800s, black slaves were eventually freed. Eventually, it was 300 years after the slave trade began. We were trading slaves from Bristol, Plymouth, London, Liverpool Harbors, many others for 300 years. And it ended in the 1800s, right? Now, between the 1800s and 2020 might feel like a long time, but it's really not. When you look through each decade, honestly, from 2020 and back into the 1800s, 1800s and there is overt and systematic oppression from white people towards those people of color. 
throughout our history. It's there and it's over and it's blatant. The reason that we don't know it is because it's a history that hasn't been taught to us. I was taught history by a white historian. I read from history books written by white people. I didn't learn what the, experience, the black experience was until much later in my life. And therefore, I have to ask myself the question, do I have a blind spot? Let me define a blind spot. I learned to drive late in my life. I passed my driving test at 29 years old. I was desperate to do it before I turned 30 and I did it by the skin of my teeth. And something I learned as, as a student driving was about the blind spot. Every time before I left off like driving my parked car, my driving instructor would say, Josh, check your blind spot. What that meant was looking over my shoulder and seeing an area that, this, that the windows of my car, sorry, the mirrors of my car didn't allow me to see. I had to physically turn and see it. Now, the reason I did that was because there might be a car behind me or a pedestrian behind me that if I reverse without looking through my blind spot, I would hit, right? So the question I had to ask myself is this, if I reverse and don't look backwards and I hit someone, was it their fault for not knowing when I would drive off or was it my fault for not checking my blind spot? It was my fault. So what we don't know impacts people as much as that which we do know. So to say I'm not racist is often a statement made based upon what we do know rather than what we don't know. What I do know is I have very, you know, views of equality, inclusivity, and now all of that is true. But the racism which is often most, most effective and most destructive in our society comes out of that which we don't know, i.e. ignorance. So I have felt so much conviction in the last few years about being a temple that Jesus might find tables within that have to be overthrown, systems that need to be changed. Jesus overthrew those, ta those tables because the system had to change and he's still doing it within us if we have the humility to ask him to reveal if that needs to happen. Now, look, I'm not going to preach to you this morning for hours. I really could talk for quite some time about this. I want to simply begin the conversation amongst us. I want to ask this question. Do we have a blind spot? Are there systems in place and at work in our life that could be impacting those around us more than we realize? We can see the murder of George Floyd and be absolutely horrified. But that's going to stop trending on Instagram. And those news headlines are going to find something else. And before you know it, that image is going to be lost in our psyche. How do we keep it there? By involving ourselves in a conversation. And so my question is, do we have a blind spot? And what could it be? I have created a website to try and make this as easy as possible for us. I'm not getting off scripture right now. I'm not moving from a sermon into a lecture. The word has to be made flesh. Jesus in us looks like something. I've made a website that has distilled five, six years of what I've learned and what I've read and who I've listened to into a very simple digestible platform for you to go on this journey. It's simply this, checkyourblindspot.co.uk, right? And on there, you'll find a ton of resources to help you in this pursuit. I I'm just gonna, just gonna do a really quick overview of how I've laid it out. There's a few steps. Listen. We have to listen. 
We have to stop defending our position and listen. That means listening to the voices that have been oppressed and silenced. I haven't read and listened to much black history. When I started doing that, I realized there was a whole history I never knew about. It required me to stop, to stop defending a position and start listening to voices I hadn't otherwise heard. The first thing is listen. The second thing is read. Change your literature. Take time to read uh, books, studies, journals, blogs, Instagram captions from people that could help educate you and inform you into these realities, right? The second one is watch. There's tons of great films, documentaries that I've put on the website to help you be educated and informed and equipped. Uh, the fourth one is pray, right? With, with those levels of information, you might just find a stirring in your heart. And so the continual practice throughout it all is prayer. Father, and I'm gonna end in a prayer, but Father, would you reveal to me in my life and in my heart where I can grow, where I can repent, metanoia, change my consciousness, where I can turn around. Uh, the second, sorry, not the second one. The, the next one is give. Jesus said, where your treasure is, where your money is, so your heart is, give. Give to companies, organizations, charities, mission groups that are on the front line working towards racial equality. Give, let your bank account speak about your convictions. And finally, act. How can we right now protest? How can we sign petitions? How can we stand in unity with our black brothers and sisters, with our friends and, and, and brothers and sisters of color? How can we do that? There are many different ways. Again, I put a list of different things you can do on the website. I've tried to make it simple because this issue is complex. And, and one, one, one thing I've heard continually from my black friends, and I have had the experience of marrying into a black family, is, Josh, we don't want to be the ones to teach you. You have to go on this journey on your own. It's not that you can't involve your black friends and family in the conversation. It's that you need to understand that you might have to do a lot of the heavy lifting yourself. The reading, the understanding, the prayer, the contemplation, the research. To then be able to educate and inform other white friends and family. To then be able to go to your black friends and family with, hey, this is what I want to do to help. This is how I want to get involved. Of course, I'm not dismissing having conversations in, with humility and love. Of course, I'm not doing that. I'm just saying there is so much that we can do without asking a black friend or a, a family member to do the work for us. Kingdom is what we're after. Jesus's kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. And what we've seen in the murder of George Floyd is there are huge gaps in the way that we represent Jesus. There are huge gaps. The Ku Klux Klan professed the gospel. There are huge gaps in our integration of who we are in representing Jesus and our view of society, racism and equality. I pray that as a church, we could go on that journey and ask ourselves as a church, as a church, where might we not be representing Christ in this area? Where could we evolve? How could we grow? If joy is based in conviction, if joy is based not upon circumstance, then I honestly believe an expression of joy in our life is revolution, is change, is things can't continue as they have been. The system doesn't work. Hey man, I'm just going to pretend I heard you say amen back to me just there. Um, I'm going to wrap up guys. I'm going to end with a prayer. 
And uh, this is a this is a reflection on the Lord's Prayer, but just a prayer that um, I think so beautifully uh, just gives to God some of these questions and these thoughts and these contemplations. So you can just you can bow your head. Uh, I heard someone say recently to to bow is a liturgy of the body. It's a preparation of prayer of the body. When we bow, we acknowledge our humility and our need for uh, surrender in our life. So you can bow, close your eyes, however you want to posture posture yourself. I'm going to pray in closing. Our Father, who always stands with the weak and the powerless, the poor, the abandoned, the sick, the aged, the very young, the unborn, and those who by victim of circumstance beat the heat of the day, who art in heaven, where everything will be reversed, where the first will be last and the last will be first, but where all will be well and every manner of being will be well. Hallowed be thy name. May we always acknowledge your holiness, respecting that your ways are not our ways, your standards are not our standards. May the reverence we give your name pull us out of the selfishness that prevents us from seeing the pain of our neighbor. Your kingdom come and your will be done. Open our freedom to let you in so that the complete mutuality that characterizes your life might flow through our veins and thus the life that we help generate may radiate your equal love for all and your special love for the poor on earth as it is in heaven. May the work of our hands, the temples and structures we build in this world reflect the temple and the structures of your glory so that the joy, graciousness, tenderness and justice of heaven will show forth within all of our structures on earth. Give life and love to us and help us to always see everything as a gift. Help us to know that nothing comes to us by right that we might give because we have been given to. Help us realize that we must give to the poor, not because they need it, but because our own health depends upon our giving to them. Us, the truly plural plural us, give not just to our own, but to everyone, including those who are very different than the narrow us. Give your gifts to us equally this day, not tomorrow. Do not let us push things off in some indefinite future so that we can continue to live justified lives in the face of injustice because we can make good excuses for our inactivity, our daily bread, so that each person in our world may have enough food, enough clean water, enough clean air, adequate health care, and sufficient access to education so that so, So as to have the sustenance of a healthy life, teach us to give from our sustenance and not just from our surplus. Forgive us our sins. Forgive us our blindness towards our neighbor, our self-preoccupation, our racism and our incurable prosperity to worry only about ourselves and our own. Forgive us our capacity to watch the evening news and do nothing about it. Do not, do not put us to the test. Do not judge us only by whether we have fed the hungry, given clothing, clothing to the victim, naked, sorry, vic, vis, visited the sick, or tried to mend the systems that victimize the poor. Spare us this test, for none of us can stand before your gospel scrutiny. Give us instead more days to mend our ways, our selfishness, and our systems. Deliver us from evil. That is from the blindness that let us continue to participate in anonymous systems within, which we need not see who gets less as we get more. 
For yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.